the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We have another co-host. At the end of the year, we'll have 50 co-hosts, ladies and gentlemen. Or we'll have just the four we have now, Nick Redfern, Chris O'Brien, Paul Kimball, and a special PowerCast welcome to Greg Bishop. Hey there. Welcome aboard. Now, as our listeners know, I started in this crazy business working for traditional radio, a real radio station. And, you know, (laughs) you never know what that means to anybody. I don't think it means very much. But the fact of the matter is that you work for pirate radio. I don't know if I worked for pirate radio. There was a pirate radio station in Los Angeles called KBLT. It ran from 1998 to 2000. And I was on from... A few months after it started up till when they got busted by the FCC, and then they went back on the air again, and the FCC busted them again, and then that was it. Um, but for two years, I was, uh, yeah, I was broadcasting on, a, on an unauthorized FM uh, frequency in Los Angeles, and it actually won Best uh, Radio Station in Los Angeles two years in a row by, by the LA Weekly, I think. Now, that's interesting, too. Why couldn't they just get a regular traditional broadcast license, or can you even get those anymore? If you've got a couple million dollars, you can maybe think about possibly getting a radio station license. I think it's probably more than a million dollars. That's why the you know the only radio you hear is stations that are owned by mega corporations. Those are the only ones that can, can afford it. So I think that's why people voted the station um, like that because it was it, it was so different, you know. It was just basically a bunch of people who were really into music and and the scene and talk and things like that, doing exactly what they wanted to. That seems to be a recipe for good time most of the time. Also, a recipe for online radio, as a matter of fact. But yes. part of the situation in the broadcast industry is this: when I worked in radio, they were all small businesses. Except for the big cities where the stations were owned by the TV networks. You know, yeah, like not NBC anymore. Like and CBS. No. What happened is all those stations were purchased by large conglomerates, CBS, Clear Channel. They each own hundreds of stations. You go to a big city like L.A., New York, Chicago, Phoenix, Philadelphia, you'll find that one company owns 10 or 15 competing stations. But they don't compete. What they do is they carve out the audience and each one takes a portion of it. Right, and they do, and they do it by formula, and you can tell that by listening to the stations, which is why I never listen to the radio anymore because it's none of it's interesting to me. I guess that means that we're blessed or stuck with internet radio, which is, you know, when I, I, I'm not as old as you, really, not not quite. Nobody as old. is, by the way. Really? Right. Um, but when I was a, a kid, I would never have dreamed that you could go on your computer, when anybody had a computer, and listen to practically anything you wanted. It's, it's, it's like a dream come true. Well, I was not saying that if a station calls me up and says, yes, we'd like to carry the PowerCast, I'd say no, I wouldn't. It's just that we well, have not. a lot of opportunities. It means you can listen on a regular radio, AM and FM. You can get stations there. You get satellite radio. You get internet radio. We have choices. That's what's great. But speaking of radio, I came out as a regular disc jockey and later as a newscaster because I could put more than two words together coherently most of the time. (laughs) That's a marketable skill. I guess it was at that time. (laughs) Maybe not anymore, but in these days, you know, with blogosphere and everything, I think that sometimes you wonder whether people can write in the traditional way anymore. It's oh, no, they can't. I'm, I'm getting paid to do sometimes writing gigs, just boring things, because they can't find anybody to put more than one sentence together that makes any sense. 
makes any sense is in vaguely proper English is spelled right and it doesn't have to be edited too much. That's an even more marketable skill than talking, apparently. Well, I used to do that. They don't really send me the assignments anymore. I wonder about that. I'll have to look into it. But seriously speaking, of all the things one can do in radio and writing, why did you select UFOs? I don't know, really. It's, you know what you do? You do some, especially if you're not being paid for it, which is what's the, what the deal is for most people that are into it and that you hear about, including um, you and other radio hosts, especially in the Internet. Uh, you do it because you want to. You do it because it's a subject that interests you, and then you hope at some point, you know, somebody might recognize it, or you can hustle it a little bit. Um, I was interested in it when I was a kid, and then I lost the interest when I was um, in uh, junior high and high school because there were, you know, girls and drugs and cars. And then after college, I I got interested in it again, and I I really don't have any idea why. Although I did get interested again when I had a a very bad couple of weeks. Um, following a very bad year, and I don't know why, but suddenly it was interesting to me again because because my mindset changed, I guess. And I think I, what it did actually um, was it, it may have saved my life being interested in weird stuff. It certainly got me interested in research, writing, and I've met so many great people through it, including yourself and a lot of the guests you've had on and our guest today. Speaking of our guest today, Walter Bosley, tell me about him. Walter, <laughs> I'll tell you how we met because this is this is uh, I like the story. David Childress, if you know who he is, of course, um, Adventures Unlimited Press. He was having a conference in Kempton, Illinois, which is in the middle of nowhere, but it's um, it's his base of operations because he can um, he basically can do what he wants in that town. I don't mean illegally. Anyway, he was having a conference there, and Walter showed up because Walter was one of his readers. He was interested in some of the stuff. And a couple people started saying, oh, don't talk to him. He's, he used to be in the Air Force and FBI. He's a government guy. And so I immediately thought, weird government guy hanging around a uh, anomalous phenomenon conference. I have to talk to him. So I was the only one that ended up talking to him, besides Ken Thomas, strangely enough, the one of the uh, best-known conspiracy writers. And um, we went on from there, and he's been a co-host with me on my show since... 2004, I think, quite a while, five or six years. And um, we've done a lot of stuff together and projects together, and um, we remain friends. And he, he's still on the show regularly as, as, uh, as a co-host on um, Radio Mysterioso on Sundays. And we'll have Walter Bosley, who strikes me as somewhat of a character here. He's got a really fascinating background. We'll hear about that with our new co-host, Greg Bishop, coming up next on The Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at the That's news at the 
And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, neighbors. Here's a special announcement. As you know, the PowerCast started in 2006. Now in 2010, we're going to be syndicated on a national network and available to many local radio stations here in the U.S. We'll also still be available online and as a podcast from iTunes and other places. We'll also be available through an iPhone app. We'll tell you more soon. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the PowerCast. Hey, the guest this week uh, for my first stint here on the Paracast is Walter Bosley, who's been a friend of mine for years now. And uh, he remains a friend because he's one of those people that continually amazes, uh, befuddles, and teaches me, and uh, that's how I keep friends. Walter, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for such a great intro. Thanks for having me back, guys. You see, after he does an intro like that, we don't need to continue. We just leave. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got it backwards. Well, I learned more from him and everybody I meet through him. Well, then, you know, we if everybody thinks they're getting the better part of the deal, then it must be a good deal. If it is a deal, making friends. I, though, I guess, though, with some people, it is kind of a deal, especially if you live in Hollywood. Walter knows that. Uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I've been married. I know what relationships as deals are about. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Gene, do you have a little rim shot thing that you should That's uh, just hook up to the board? That's too trite. Really? I used to have one at the pirate station. I used it. <laughs> well, you know what? what? I won't use those things because I just think it's trite. I think sound I effects are trite, and I think instead let's just do it for real. I know, I know. I, I, this was when I was first starting out on radio. Walter, um, yeah. in my introduction, I said that when we met, it was at Dave Childress's conference in um, Kempton. Yes. Yeah. And I can't remember what year that was. Was it 2001, maybe? No, 2004, believe oh, it or Oh, four. Okay, I said four first. And that um, people were whispering, hey, that guy's a government man. You shouldn't talk to him, which made me want to talk to you immediately. <laughs> uh, so uh, for people that don't know who you are, uh, what kind of government man were you? And it's, it's rather extensive if people don't know. Um, I spent... Um, I, in total, 19 years um, affiliated with Uncle Sam. Uh, my first six were with the FBI. I was a counterintelligence specialist, which meant that I did um, you, know, you know investigative uh, su- support work um, in a shallow undercover role, usually, and uh, you know on, on on the street in the field. Um, I was credentialed. I just was not an agent. And then I earned my commission in the Air Force and went immediately into the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, where I spent almost another six years, just about, mostly running counter-espionage operations and uh, doing counterintelligence investigations as a special agent, badged, credentialed, gunned the whole thing, during which time I did a deployment to Saudi Arabia. And then uh, after coming off uh, active duty, I worked for just under six years in the field of um, corporate personnel um, security in an anti-terrorism type of vein. I helped keep people Price safe hell. all over the world. What's that? What does that mean, corporate security and an anti-terrorism uh, vein? I worked in a capacity where um, for whoever the client was, um, I would go anywhere on the face of the earth um, and 
do threat assessment work on their personal living situation, on their routes to and from work, and then I would work with them um, to determine uh, the, 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 the best routes and the best ways for them to avoid being a target of terrorism, and uh, also gave support to the the hunt for terrorists. Uh, this was between 2000 and the summer of 2005. And that took me to Iraq, of course, that war zone. Took me to Afghanistan a few times, uh, Sudan, and, and some you know more vacation-like spots. I had a good mix in there. The people who are, shall we say, conspiracy-minded are going to say, well, this guy worked as a government operative. Is he here as a disinformation specialist next? Yes, they would ask that. I have been asked that before. And no, um, in, in I assure you, never... <laughs> Have I ever appeared on this or any other show like it in any uh, capacity for uh, Uncle Sam? They, in fact, they uh, they know I'm doing it. I have um, old colleagues who have contacted me, and I think they uh, roll their eyes and get a chuckle, but um, I have never provided any kind of disinformation. And there will be people who won't believe that either, but oh well. They the also logical believe- question, of course, Walter, is does the government even know anything that... <laughs> <laughs> needs to be disclosed. Well, as I was going to say, the people that would, would never believe me also are the ones who believe that disclosure is right around the corner. Um, I, you know what? My opinion on what the government knows, I came to a personal conclusion out of um, experience in OSI with how uh, material is guarded and classified. And um, I believe that the custodian of the information, objects, whatever the evidence is, um, is probably in the hands of a private concern. Um, For instance, private companies are not required by law to uh, reveal or disclose anything if it's proprietary information. Like the government, after a while, the people say, hey, what's going on with UFOs? After a while, you know, you... Under the law, you would be able to get that out of them. But um, by shifting it over to a private corporation, private party, under the law, you would not necessarily have to. In fact, you would not have to. They would not have to reveal it to the public. And So, I for be- example, they can call up Steve Jobs over at Apple and say, Steve, we got the secret of UFOs here. But, of course, you're the most secretive company on the planet. You can yeah. keep the secret better than anyone. Here it is. Yeah, exactly, and, and they would not have to uh, turn it over, and it gives uh, Uncle Sam culpable deniability. Now, remember, this is my conclusion drawn from my experience. This is not some official policy. I'm I'm just saying that that's what I believe. If they had it, and whatever they have, that is probably the best way for Uncle Sam to shift it over and have culpable deniability to the public saying, you know, we don't have any flying saucers. We don't have any data like this. Well, if you go to one infinite loop in Cupertino, California, they might. Uh, Yeah, and they wouldn't have to share it with the public. (laughs) And as we know, we joke about this, but now I bet that some of the exopolitics people are going to be calling Apple corporate communications and say, can Walter (laughs) Bosley said Apple? Exactly. Has a secret about UFOs. Well, let's go back into your experience in government, did your interest in UFOs precede that or as a result or during? Oh, years before preceded it. I grew up with my dad telling me strange little stories about uh, a place that I would come to uh, learn was Roswell. And um, we had UFO books around the house, and I was interested in it for many years. And um, (laughs) they still let me in. (laughs) They didn't let you into the Air Force. 
<laughs> well, FBI, yeah. Well, of course, you don't talk about that stuff in interviews, but um, yeah. So, no, I, I, I'd been interested in this from, you know, childhood. Now, you alluded to something when we had you on previously and going into your background about your father's knowledge about Roswell? Yes. Can um, we, now that we have you and just you and Greg here in the room, sure. virtually, if nothing else, tell us about what did your father knew and how did he know it? Well, um, most of the details are in an April 2005 article in Fate magazine, which I wrote under my fiction pseudonym, EA Guest, because my employment at the time was, um, you know, sensitive enough that um, I didn't want to put it under my real name. But since then, I have come out and, you know, admitted and said, hey, that, that is me. But uh, basically, my dad was in the Air Force in the late 50s, and he worked um, in what you call um, aerospace medicine, and um, he ran pilots through the altitude chambers and things like that. And the unit he was with at George Air Force Base, they did the ground testing on the uh, Mercury Space Program pressure suits, the silver ones that you see in the movie The Right Stuff. And because he did this work, he had a pretty high clearance. And uh, he tells the story of um, going off on an assignment to, to Texas and the plane making a northward banking turn somewhere over Louisiana and an intelligence officer coming out from uh, the uh, near the cockpit of the aircraft and informing him and the guys he was with that they were indeed heading to Wright-Patterson and uh, would be briefed on their, you know, the actualities of their assignment. And when they got there, they were briefed in, he says, um, on Roswell. And they were shown the bodies, and they were told what these people were and where they were from. And um, then after that, he was briefed in on a program that they were being pulled into um, that basically was a retrieval operation because he was told it had happened again, another crash, this time in eastern Arizona, uh, after getting briefed in and, and on the mission in right, at Wright Pat in Ohio. They were then flown to Arizona where they were part of a very large retrieval operation which took them also underground in some subterranean areas where they, according to him, encountered the people from whose civilization this craft came from. One of the things I'll say right off bat, which certainly the skeptics will ask, okay, uh, how was he allowed to say this to you? And you, having worked with the government, how are you allowed to repeat it? Well, um, you know, he had started telling me parts of this story from the time I was a kid, and that was already almost 20 years after he got out. And he would only tell little parts. And by the time he told me what I just told you, the whole big thing like that, you know, we're talking just, uh, you know, like uh, five or six years ago. And I was already out of the Air Force, you know, five or six years, uh, five years by then. And, um, you know, I can talk about this because I was never briefed about this any time during my employment with the Air Force OSI or any government entity. So my view is, unless I was sitting in a vault somewhere in a little room and being briefed in on this, and, and it's covered under what I signed, um, it's fair game. Do we think and, maybe there is like a Warehouse 13 where the government keeps all the stuff on ice, or is, again, is, does Apple Computer have Warehouse 13? It, well, whoever has it, of course it exists. I mean, you've got to have a place to store something. I would say look at Denver. 
you know, with all the interesting, mysterious things going on, you know, underground near the airport there, I would say, look there. It's smack dab in the middle of our, our mainland. And uh, you got a lot of military around there, a lot of high technical stuff. I would say look in the Denver area. I think that's where, that's my guess now. That seems like a really light reason to say Denver. Do you have any other reasons why you would you said said this to me too? Why you would think that that a Hangar 18 kind of thing would be located in Denver? Because or is it just a hunch? Well, it, it, it's it's a hunch based on things I've heard over the years and, and learned, and, and things you know that were alluded to when I was in the Air Force about. Um, I, I mean, we know that there's some major Air Force uh, technology installations there in the Denver area. I I heard about that while I was on active duty. It to me, it makes good operational sense that if you're going to have you know, your your big secret vault, that's where I would put it. Okay. Let's go back to your dad's experience because there's a sure. few questions I'd like to kind of get clarified here. Okay. Right. What did he see or observe about the bodies? Traditional greys or something else? <laughs> no, not the traditional greys um, at all. In fact, that used to amuse the hell out of him. He said that they were pretty much uh, looked like us, but uh, without body hair, and uh, the way he described their hands, that their their fingers were longer, but he, he said they pretty much were like us, but without body hair. And he claimed that the people he met underground were as human as you or I. They were basically human beings that in, an, in a remote past uh, cataclysm, surface cataclysm, had gone underground. Uh, for survival, and many of them just chose to stay down there. It sounds like the legend of the Deeros and Tiros. Yeah, very similar, Deeros and Tiros, or any any number of legends of uh, hidden underground uh, civilizations. And that doesn't necessarily mean I personally believe in a big hollow earth, you know, literal sense. But uh, there is a lot of evidence for vast habitable underground, you know, pockets underneath our our surface of our planet. And uh, this this is what he said is true. This is what he told me he witnessed. Now, based on what Dad witnessed, what he explained to you, and these experiences, now we segue to the 1990s in the book The Day After Roswell by uh -huh. Bill Burns and mm -hmm. Philip Corso. Right. He's saying, okay, they recovered alien technology. He was the bag man who went to private industry and said, Here's stuff like night vision goggles, the low-hanging fruit that we can possibly, shall we say, exploit or learn something about and reverse engineer. So if we take what happened to your father mm -hmm. and we then move to this other book, which is very controversial, as you know, Mm -hmm. Do you think that's possible? Do you think Corso may have been involved then? I think that um, I think it's possible that Corso consciously presented material that allowed the public to assume the ET hypothesis, maybe to feed the ET hypothesis. You know, I have to uh, refer to um, you know the the the, uh, the Nazi theory. Um, just look at Joseph Farrell's book Roswell and the Reich. For those who aren't familiar with the Nazi theory, read that book because that book is singularly the most detailed um, look and um, investigation, if you will, or presentation of any theory about Roswell ever presented. Well, you accept his theory as being one that, shall we say, 
is accurate? Wow. You know what? It's so far the most accurate that we have available. Yeah. Because when you study what the Germans were actually researching, when you look at the evidence and, and when you look at, you know, all the, you know, the, the UFO events in question over the years and you look at it from that point of view, it makes far more sense than E.T. or underground people or, um, you know, anything else. Okay, so we accept then if we assume that all this is accurate. Is it possible your father was telling you a story or was given a cover story in the course of his work that this is not exactly what was going on? Um, Yes, um, I do believe that the, the cover though, however, was um, presented to him as truth, and uh, I was told, it's kind of interesting, there's kind of an official way I learn things, and then there's kind of an unofficial that I take as official, and and one of those sources pretty much explained to me that uh, they had started using hypnosis back then to, um, you know, kind of keep people from talking about certain things, or possibly, um, in, in my uh, conclusion on that question you just asked it, it it is possible that they might have put in his head the version he told me but i'm i will tell you he absolutely believed what he was telling me because i saw the emotional reaction that he went through because a man he describes a man being killed by the technology of one of the underground people one of the guys that my dad was working with and and he gets real emotional at the point of the story where he's talking about this this that they kind of ran into these people down below and it, it was not intended to be a hostile kind of thing but because of miscommunication and such that's what happened and he gets he he got he's passed away since he was murdered and uh, he, um, he he got very emotional. And I, as an agent, I learned interview and interrogation techniques. And some of the things you learn is is how to talk with somebody and read them and question them in a way to to get to the see if they're lying. And I used everything I know on the man, and he was not lying to me. Now he could have been telling me a cover story he didn't realize was a cover story, but he was not lying to me. He believed what uh, he was telling me. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual. A PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial you're in the paracast you never know what's going to happen next I believe my co-host is Greg Bishop. Our guest is Walter Bosley. And we have some very unusual stuff going on here, folks. Some very unusual information, and we're going to explore it further. Okay. Now, with this background gleaned over a number of years, you're working for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. You're a specialist in counterintelligence. You were also stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which... 
At one mm-hmm. time, we all call UFO Central because of the present yes. Project Blue Book there. Okay, right. so while you were over at Wright-Patterson, uh-huh. did you see anything weird? While I was at Wright-Pat, the one uh, strange thing I saw or experienced was in the uh, unmarked black helicopter uh, rising up out of a cornfield between Fairborn and Yellow Springs one, uh, one late afternoon. And when I inquired about it, um, I was told that, uh, oh yeah, it was associated with a federal agency that uh, whose work is very far removed from anything to do with UFOs. And and I recall we, we all had kind of a, a, a good laugh on, uh, oh my gosh, what are they thinking when they saw this black helicopter rise out of the cornfield, you know, um, but uh, you know, while I was there during the course of my work, yeah, I had access to uh, uh, technology, um, information, data that I, I cannot discuss that, um, you know, naturally in the course of my duties, I would have. I did learn some interesting things about, um, you know, how some uh, advanced Air Force platforms work and, uh, you know, stuff I can't talk about. But um, I did not see any Hangar 18 or, you know, any stored flying saucers or such like that. If they ever were at Wright Pad, I guarantee you they're um, not likely there anymore and haven't been there for a long time. Or maybe it's above your pay grade. Uh, My, well, pay pay grade um, doesn't necessarily equate to clearance level. (laughs) Um, I I had a clearance level quite high above uh, some pay grades well above mine. Well, there's another point, too, and I have to ask the same question again. If you did see something, could yeah. you even tell us? Hell no, and I wouldn't. <laughs> I got a question for you. This is one I've, I've given to people I know who are like you, Doty and people like that. While you were at Wright Pat or any time in your duties, anywhere, in an official capacity, did you ever see or hear or... Um, Get uh, briefed into anything that would make most of us go, "Holy crap!" You know that that's that, that I didn't even know the government could do that. I didn't even know we had that kind of technology. You, you know, back then and and um, maybe now, because of right now might be about the time we might be finding out about it. Um, well, as, as you could guess, um, if I were officially briefed in on it again, <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't acknowledge. But you know, as far I was as talking stuff, about your reaction. I'm sorry, what the technology is, but so, but okay, your reaction and the possible reaction of people. Because oh, sure. then you don't have to discuss what it is, but you can make give people kind of a yeah. idea of what was this technology that you were sworn to protect and. You know, uh, could it be mistaken for the UFO oh, stuff I, that we often see and talk about? Yes, um, yes. Uh, I did hear about something um, from someone who would know that it was, I will say that it was um, a something that's launched in an unconventional manner. Unconventional meaning what we're used to. And that right there could explain... It could explain some of the things you yourself have investigated, and when I heard about it, I was I was impressed. And um, you know, I, I whenever you hear about certain capabilities and, and how things actually work, there there are some very interesting surprises, you know, in there. Um, but yeah, yeah, and lightning, and and absolutely, these are things. One of the first thoughts that comes to your mind is, wow, this is what these folks think is. A flying saucer or, or something from another planet. 
Um, what did you think of that guy last week that was on the show with us saying that there were lighter than aircraft that could do in, incredible fast maneuvers and things like that? Did that sound plausible to you? Uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, I'm not going to say it's implausible that you know that that there are lighter than aircraft that you know that can do amazing things. My only difficulty was based on his work in that. He, seem to not be as open to other things and my my experience has been there's a lot of compartmentalization that's what it's all about and uh, when you're when you're in that world most of the guys i know and myself you come away going well i know what i experienced i know what i was briefed in on i know what i worked with but i don't know what the guys down the hall in the program i'm not read in on i don't know what they're doing and uh, i'm not going to say that you know anything out of the scope of what I worked is impossible or, or probably not likely. I'm not about to say that. As a matter of fact, it's usually quite the opposite. It's wow, if the stuff I've seen is possible, then hmm, you know, I wonder what they're doing. Yeah, and that was when you that was when you were active, which was the early to mid '90s, right? It was uh, from I, I was I. I reported to OTS in August of 1993, reported to OSI, I was commissioned in November of 93, reported to uh, OSI Academy in, I believe, January of 94. Walter, we have some other people who were once in the military who have become controversial in the UFO field, such as Richard Doty, Robert mm-hmm. Collins. Yeah. What about them? Do we take anything that they say seriously, Walter? I never met them. I don't know them personally. It, it's interesting. Uh, my training agent, uh, when I got my first assignment as an OSI agent, was a guy named Bob Collins. And, and I, I never met Richard Doty. Um, his name was brought up on one particular project I did as kind of a cautionary tale. Um, but, you know, I never met the man. I, I don't know him. I, you know, so I can't really uh, pass judgment. It, it, I just can't do it, so I won't. Um, but uh, I would say, uh, listen to what people say. Try to do your own follow-up on what they say. Your own. Um, don't really take, if at all possible, if you could not take someone else's word, go out or, or sit down and, and look into it yourself, and then draw your own conclusions. Another thing people don't realize is that when you're in OSI, in certain capacities, you've, you're given a lot of latitude to do things to accomplish your mission. Isn't that right, Walter? You are trusted to go out there and do your job, and because you have a very well-thought-out, well-written, well-seasoned set of regulations that, um, you know, the guys before you, um, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, These regulations are there. They work. But when you're an OSI agent, as you are a federal agent in any agency, you are trusted to um, do the job correctly and, and to have the smarts to be able to make the right uh, tactical investigative decisions. And so, yeah, and, and depending upon what your job is within that, mine, I happen to be a counter-espionage operations uh, agent, and I was chief of the branch at Wright Pat, and um, that was double agent ops. And, um, you know, so, so we, were, we were doing operational stuff, and, yeah, it's a great position of trust, and it was fascinating work. I loved every minute of it. But, exactly, you know, you're trusted, but you are still reporting to superiors. You are still following guidelines, and believe me, if you uh, step out those guidelines, you know, egregiously, um, you're, you're going to eat you alive. 
what I was implying was that you would make a comparison between you and Doty and say, well, they're they're coming from the same place, so why should we trust either of them or whatever? But my oh, implication was that he was doing a job for certain uh, um, bosses and certain other agencies uh, associated with the OSI, at least in capacity of at. Um, uh, Kirtland, and you are doing a certain job. It doesn't mean you're going to do it the same way, per- exactly. perform it the same way, and uh, you know the, the results are going to be different. And um, it, it, right. people look at the government; it's a monolithic thing, and it's not. And no. it, it, that has to be stressed over and over and over again to a lot of UFO and conspiracy type people. That uh, some people are trustworthy, some aren't. Some are going to do things a certain way, some are others. And, um, yeah, and you adjust, if you're interested in that, you adjust your inquiries and your attitude accordingly to the person you're dealing with. Right. Um, wouldn't you say that, Walter? <laughs> yes, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. It, um, you know, it really does come down to the individual, you know, who's got the boots on the ground, as we say, and um, that individual can make or break their operation, their case, um, or the reputation of the organization, depending upon what they do. And, um, you know, nobody's perfect. But um, a lot of folks don't make certain mistakes, you know, I can honestly say, particularly about OSI. When I was in, it had um, enjoyed the best reputation of all the special investigative uh, service um, organizations of the military services, bar none. Fast question here, maybe not a fast question. Okay. You're working for the Air Force. You're at Wright-Patterson. You know about UFOs because of your prior interest. Did mm-hmm. your bosses ever ask you to do any assignments related to UFOs, the UFO research community, witnesses, whatever? No. As I said, I was chief of a counter-espionage operations branch. That exposed me personally to some pretty uh, interesting technology on a regular daily basis for three years. Um, but I had my hands pretty full running that. That was a very important mission. Um, and I was in charge of it for those those three years. Okay, I know domestic what you were foreign. Yeah. What I did was international in scope. What I was, uh, imp- I think what Gene was implying was something that I'd written down as a question because mm-hmm. of your, um, because what you told me when we first met, and you've mentioned on my show mm-hmm. about uh, attending at least one UFO conference, kind of to see what was going on. Yeah, that was when I was assigned to Los Angeles, and I was doing a very shallow um, operation because the concern that I was looking at was. Um, the possibility of foreign intelligence agents working within civilian UFO organizations to get a closer look at our technology and our bases. Um, A a very valid concern, a very uh, honest, necessary concern of the U.S. Air Force to look into. I convinced my uh, commanders and headquarters to let me do it. <laughs> so, oh, so you wanted to go and do that and see and see what's going? Because I was at that convention and I saw those Russian people. And I didn't know Walter was there. That was before we met. It was my idea, the operation. Well, without going into detail, or maybe you can or can't. Mm-hmm. Did you find any evidence of this foreign infiltration? Hmm. No comments. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I talk with Bill Moore quite a bit, and he said there was quite a bit of it. And there was also quite a bit of it, believe it or not, which I guess most people would, at least in the 70s and 80s at that time, from Chinese intelligence Mm. who were infiltrating UFO organizations as well. Well, that's another point, too. Now that you're out of the business, the intelligent business, 
Walter, do you see any evidence today this is still going on? Um, I, you know what? I, I, to be honest, my interest in UFOs has altered, um, and it has actually kind of waned as far as the UFO ufology community. I think ufology has gone down a dead end. Um, well, that's yeah. happened for 60 years. What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I'm just noticing it for the first time. But um, so I, I don't really, I don't really look that closely. It's, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, it's almost to a don't care anymore <laughs> situation. Um, I, I don't, I, you know, if I were looking closely, I, I might see it. But uh, I, my point is, I don't look closely enough anymore. I, you know, have no need to. I think that's true with a lot of people here as you get exposed to UFOs, UFO research, the field. The field can be toxic. The field can be a mess because it's not just people looking at flying saucers and trying to figure out what they are. You have egos. You have turf wars. You have agendas which can just be making a buck, but not always at the expense of trying to find out what's going on, but just... To make a buck, it doesn't matter if you're telling the truth or not. You you have a lot of people who aren't looking for the truth; they're looking for a spotlight. You know that kind of brings with it the the it, it, it's the attention is diverted now away from true research and investigation. It's more into um, perpetuating dogma. Really, is what it's come down to. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Greg Bishop, our co-host on this week's episode of the PowerCast, Walter Bosley. Joining us, he's worked with Greg as a co-host on his shows, but also he's a former Air Force intelligence man, okay? OSI. With OSI, and therefore we are asking him questions that he can't answer. And we don't want him to be arrested, folks, okay? So when I get the letters and I see the messages on the PowerCast forums and they say, why didn't you ask Walter this? Well, you know what? The guy has to accept certain requirements to get the job. He doesn't have to take the job. But once you do, you have to agree to certain requirements. And that means, you know, there's some things you can't say. We had, of course, very recently Nick Pope on the Paracast, and there are things he can't say. And that's the way it is. If you want to be 
a good citizen. You don't want to be arrested or face the consequences. You don't talk about certain things. But still, we're trying to understand how things work in the UFO field. But then I go back to the same thing. The UFO field has gone nowhere. Major Donald Kehoe, in the book Flying Saucer Conspiracy, said the government knows everything. They're spaceships. We've got to ask for disclosure. He called the government people the silence group. Segway to 2010, 54 years later. What's the difference? Right. Oh, there's almost no difference. I mean, it's the same... It's the same thing over and over again, and it's a bunch of people in a circle jerk, and that's what it's been for a long time. And if you try to suggest that they they are in a circle jerk, they get mad at you um, <laughs> because they don't want to be exposed as a people people sitting around circle jerking about something that that hasn't gotten anywhere. And all it does is pump up people's egos and and people that are new to the field that get fascinated for a while. And if they're stupid, they're fascinated for a long while. And if they're smart, they leave it very quickly, or they go off and do something on their own. Like Mac did, or like uh, Jim Brandon did, or or, or Greg Little, or, or um, uh, Valet, or any of the people that we always bring up when we're uh, doing our talks and uh, radio shows. So we're trying to figure out what's really going on, and one of the subjects we covered, Walter, when you were on the first time on the show with Alan Greenfield and Michael Mott and some other guests, mm-hmm. we were talking about the work of Mac Tony's insofar as crypto-terrestrials were concerned, the fact that if UFOs exist, maybe they are from here. Mm -hmm. So, okay, do we think then that there are no spaceships at all? What do you think, Walter? No, I I absolutely think that there are um, extraterrestrials uh, living throughout space, and I do think they have come here. I I do think um, a percentage of things people are seeing are from other planets. Uh, However, there is just as much, and actually more evidence that um, some pretty interesting things have been going on right here. Um, in, in, in evidence of uh, lost civilizations, lost races uh, that remain somewhere. And one of my favorite um, arguments I hear, and I just read it on a blog recently, a gentleman who uh, really took exception to the whole crypto-terrestrial theory, um, he brought up the, uh, the old thing about, well, we've, you know, our, our, uh, our minds, you know, we've, we've drilled into the, the, the earth, and, uh, you know, it, when you really look closely at that, it's laughable because I think the deepest any mine has ever drilled is, uh, you know, uh, just X number of few miles. And when you think about how big the planet is, um, no drill has ever, you know, gone, you know, anywhere near deep enough to be able to conclude that there are not, you know, vast hollow pockets inside the Earth. Um, but yet that's the one that gets uh, brought up. Uh, quite often, there's vast uh, hollow pockets everywhere. They're being dis- they're being discovered every few years. Well, I was unfortunately, told- we have that vast hollow pocket that's yielding all that oil in the Gulf Coast. <laughs> yeah, it's not hollow. It, it, it's it's becoming hollow. Yeah, that, 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 well, there will be another space to maybe someone to move into there. <laughs> I was told uh, I learned, and this was not in an official capacity. But um, in, a, in an interesting capacity, um, I was told that uh, the huge, well, let me go back. In, in around the, the late 80s, I was told, we were talking about the caverns and, and things, and uh, with, with this individual I was talking about this, and we were talking about Carlsbad Caverns and, and the fact that, gosh, you got Roswell 
right up there in New Mexico, and you've got Carlsbad Caverns. And we were talking about, hmm, you know, well, there's a major cavern system there. And I was told that actually, this was in the late 80s, remember, I was told this, that there was a huge, huge, vast cavern discovered even deeper than what they called the Big Room or the big one at Carlsbad, and that evidence of a, one of these lost civilizations was found down there. Now, what I found interesting was within about five to ten years after I was told this, the Department of Interior ran an article and kind of revealed that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a, a larger room we found. Well, I was told that they'd known about that larger room since the 1950s. And I was told before I ever saw this article in the 90s that, that it existed. So it was kind of, you know, a confirmation of what I had been told a few years earlier. And that implies, you know, well, if there's that one, what else is there? Greg, you want to drop in on this? Yeah, well, what Walter was talking about, this guy had apparently wrote a, um, a piece of uh, disagreeing with the premise of Mac Tony's book. I haven't read that piece, but he said it, the title of it was something about the crypto-terrestrial lie. And well, isn't uh, that a bit extreme? It is a bit extreme because well, because in the book, I don't think Mac ever said this is what's going on, and I know, and you don't. Exactly. And that that would be a, a definitive statement. He he put forward a theory, and Walter um, described the, the this article. Maybe you can talk about it a little bit more so people can get on that discussion and and pound this guy into the ground if he deserves it. <laughs> okay, everybody, listen carefully. Where do we find this blog, by the way? Oh, gosh, I don't have it in front of me. I'm sure we can Google it if you just give us a few hints. Uh, you know what? I Googled, I think I was um, looking up something um, to see what uh, if there had been a comment, a, a, a new comment about something about me and one of my appearances, and that's where I, you know what? In a moment, if we... Uh, take a little break or you guys get into it i'll jump over there and see if i can find it yeah walter you see if you can find it because um actually in his i think mac actually interviewed walter for the book did he walter or did he just see a couple no of he, 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 he had read the article and he talked about it which i i was like very uh so we're flattered that he found you know enough validity in it to to even bring it up yeah, yeah I, I think he was very careful about what he brought into his argument and it was speculation to be sure but you know, what's the ufo the subject but speculation the, the, the article was reprinted in the hardcover edition of fate's book uh, the best of roswell as an alternative theory my article what was the article called uh, the other paradigm I believe it's in the April 2005 issue. I can go over to the shelf and get it if you'd like. Uh, the article is titled The Other Paradigm, and it is in the April 2005 issue of Fate magazine. It starts on page 26, and as I said, I wrote it under uh, my fiction pseudonym. And in the article, I talk about uh, the story my dad told me. I talk a little bit about... Um, uh, Indrid Cold and uh, the Mothman stuff because I spent a little time in my childhood during the Mothman stuff. Yeah, that was going to be one of the subjects we were going to ask you about too because yeah. that, that's fascinating too. That's part of your makeup that people ought to know when we're talking about these things. Oh yeah, I grew up hearing um, when I w w my dad was from Parkersburg, West Virginia. So right after I was born, my parents moved and, and we went back and lived in Mineral Wells, which is where all this Mothman prophecy stuff. A lot of it happened. It some happened at Point Pleasant, but the Woody Dernberger 
part happened right there about 300 yards from, from where we lived. And then we, we returned to California, and then we returned again to West Virginia um, between 73 to 75. And it was those two years that uh, constantly the, the people living around there, we lived in the same place, um, you know, would, would tell the kids, you know, don't get, you know, get home out of the woods before dark. Because Mr. Cold is out there, and he'll take you away. They used him as kind of a boogeyman, and that's where I learned about uh, Indrid Cold um, originally. And then I read Kiel's book, or uh, yeah, Kiel's book um, a few Prophecy. years later. Yes, yeah. but so that uh, was an early influence on you. You knew who Indrid Cold was when you were a kid, or did you? Or is he just the boogeyman you found out later? He was well, that, well no, that guy that uh, Derenberger said he met. No, I, I heard the uh, Dernberger story from the folks directly that lived back there while it was going on, and oh. uh, you know we we had um, a family friend whose uh, daughter was uh, you know friends with Woody and some of the other people, and and she's mentioned in one of the books, if not Keels. So you know, I kind of had you know close to firsthand sources on it. I definitely had firsthand sources from the people who lived there while it was going on. I mean, half these people knew Woody. They they knew the details. Um, like I said, where I lived, you could look in one direction and you could see the spot on the freeway. My friends and I used to walk out closer to it, the spot off of the highway there where he first encountered Mister Cold off to the side of the road, Indrid Cold. And, um, you know, I learned all about Lanolos, where the people live naked. They took no end of delight in telling that part of it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can bet that. You know, uh, so, but, but he was indeed kind of a boogeyman, but it was my first um, exposure to something otherworldly. It wasn't so much that he was just a monster that would get you. It was this this weird, inexplainable figure that was just out there. And, and you know, if you were caught out there after dark, you would a very, you know, it sounds suspiciously like the old tales of the crossroads and the fairy folk who would take children um, and uh, they would never see their children again or their, their children would be replaced with a fairy child, someone that was not quite exactly what um, was taken, but um, it had had that feel to it. So that when I read Keel's book, um, and now I'm one who really likes the, that movie, The Mothman Prophecies. I think it's the movie that both X Files movies tried desperately to be, and so famously just dropped the ball on. It was it was much better. Well, and the second X Files movie was really bad. I think it well, was it was just a, a it was a CSI movie. If you're a CSI fan, the second X Files movie was okay. <laughs> well, even when it comes to CSI, I think it wasn't quite there. I think it right. was dreary. And the oh, first yeah, it one, it seemed to be all focused on that underground situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was just both of them were very disappointing. But Mothman prophecies, whereas I, I really got into. You know the whole thing because of my personal exposure to it. Um, they still didn't quite depict the full extent of Indrid Cold, and in fact, I find it interesting that the whole Indrid Cold thing has not been mined um, in 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 thought or presentation um, it, it, as much as he could be because there's there's something going on there. Indrid Cold is a very very interesting figure in all of this, and uh, I think you know. Because he doesn't fit what's currently popular, he has no place in the dogma. That uh, there you go. That's why. Having gone back to the Mothman prophecies, mm -hmm. did you ever read the book from Gray Barker, The Silver Bridge? 
No. I read They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. That's the only Barker book I've read, and of course I ate that up with delight. Yeah. <laughs> As did a lot of people, although we later learned that Gray Barker could, shall we say, confabulate. <laughs> yeah. But I, I did not read the Silver, Silver Bridge. Silver Bridge was re-released um, last year, I think, by Andy Colvin and uh, a couple other people. I think, I, I think who was it? Beckley re-released it? I can't remember. But you can Possibly. read that book that was very rare for a while, and it's a good book. It's a lot more um, factual, I guess, about what happened around uh, the Mothman, uh, around uh, Point Pleasant when the Mothman stuff was going on, because... Uh, Barker lived near there, and so he was able to kind of see it as it was is happening. I mean, and it, yeah, and but the book is very allegorical. It's not a straight-ahead news report. It's not a straight-ahead no, documentary it's, description. Yeah, it's almost like watching. It's almost like having another movie of Mothman prophecies. Oh, I've uh, got to read this. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I guess I just like the way it's told a lot. But you know, it, it, I, I like I like his storytelling style at least in that book, and the fact that he's. Very, uh, he, he's not very specific about a lot of things, and he makes a lot of connections that that Keel didn't. That's why I enjoy the book because it's another look at that whole the whole thing, uh, the, uh, series of events that was going around on around that time. I'll, I'll let you borrow my copy, Walter. Okay, yeah, I'd, I'd love, and I promise I will return it. Actually, um, by the way, since he said this on the Powercast, and since we're here to separate the signal from the noise, we'll hold him to it. <laughs> One thing that I appreciate about the whole, um, you know, about John Keel, his work, and, and specifically the Mothman prophecies and, and related things and Indrid Cold is that in the last three years, and Greg knows about this, I've been investigating something that I'm not ready to talk about in detail because I'm finishing up the book. Um, and uh, I'll be talking about it plenty then, but what I've been going through in the last three years, and I've got a lifetime of strange experiences and, and encounters with uh, you know weird phenomena, but the last three years of my life, have it's been more intense, and I've had more things revealed to me through it. I've had more encounters with synchronicity. I've had encounters with visitation. I've had encounters with... Uh, certain entities revealing themselves in ways and just a, a plethora of, of so many amazing things um, amazing to me uh, that it's no, you know, that's why when people bring up, hey, flying saucers, I kind of go, oh, forget that stuff. Look at this over here. <laughs> and uh, it's been a very intense period of my life that I'm going to be talking about more soon when the, you know, the new book you know what? This has reached a point here where we're going to break for the hourly break. But okay. maybe some things about your life experiences we can talk about. Sure. In part two, we have co-host Greg Bishop and Walter Bosley joining us on the PowerCast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack! Attack. 
of the Rockwells is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We have Walter Bosley. Our co-host is Greg Bishop. In part one of the Paracast, we learned that Walter has had some experiences. So let's start at the beginning. <laughs> Aha. Have you ever seen a UFO? Yes, and then I There's some hesitation it. there. <laughs> well, because then I identified it. What I Okay, saw, so it became an IFO. Yeah, what I saw was what turned out to be the F-117 stealth fighter. I How did you mistake it? Was it at a funny angle or something? So, well, when you say UFO, I didn't say I saw a flying saucer. What oh, okay. I saw was something that was, you know, silent and moving low and uh, didn't seem to have a normal aircraft shape. And, you know, later on, I can't go into the detail, but I looked into that, of course, once I got into the position and uh, found out, aha, that's what I was seeing. Did that have something to do with you saying it was silent? Was it silent the whole time? The whole time I saw it, it was quiet. How close to you were were you to it? Oh, God, I'm really bad at judging distances. It, it didn't fly right overhead. I was I was in one place. I, I, I was in my spot and looking out into the desert, and it was probably, I want to say... Uh, you know, a, a couple of miles, of, you know, a mile or so away. It, it, you know, if it were a normal jet or anything, um, believe me, it would have been heard. This was quiet. Okay. Right, let's I, talk I was just about wondering. stuff you couldn't explain, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever have anything happen to you that you couldn't explain or seemed weird, paranormal, and if so, when was the earliest event? Oh, you're talking about the last 30 years of my life. Uh, okay, let's start 30 years ago. Yeah, 1979, December of 1979, it was a Sunday morning, and I was, I had turned 16 in October, so I was just a, you know, high school kid. I woke up on that Sunday morning in, in that month of that year, and something was different, and um, I, I lifted my uh, hands up, I looked at my hands, and my first thought was, these hands are not mine. These are not mine. And I look around, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing things in a textured way that the day before, I, it, I just didn't look at things that way. It was as if, I, I, I got up, I'm, I'm walking through the house, and, you know, I, I see, you know, my, I see these two girls, my sisters, you know, I see my mom at the stove, and I'm thinking, well, there's sisters. They're not my sisters. There's mom. She's not my mom. There's something. There's a, a weird disconnect here. And uh, I wasn't scared. I, it was very curious. It was very fascinating. And I just kind of, you know, walked through the house. And, and that evening, I'm sitting there, you know, watching, uh, you know, family sitting there watching TV. And I feel totally unconnected to these people, it, it, as if I, you know, were detached. It felt as if years later, I, the concept of, some people call it a walk-in, I felt had best described what that experience was. It was as if I was somebody else who woke up in this body 
at at that time and and you know was just kind of oh here I am now and for years I didn't tell people about it for the obvious reasons and then uh, when I heard about the concept of the walk some people tried to say oh it was an abduction experience I just that just makes me want to cringe no it was not an abduction experience um, after you've heard some of the discussions in the Powercast forums I think we are all cringing at the word abductions these days yeah. <laughs> and uh, then years yeah years later when I learned about the concept of the walk-in I felt that was the closest I'd heard yet um, I do I, what but, pray but, tell is a walk-in for those who don't know the walk-in, basically, my understanding of it is that um, it, it, it's, it's when you have the body as the vessel for the soul, and when the original soul leaves the body, for whatever reason, it's, it's time is done or whatever, um, a, a soul, another soul can come in and occupy that body. Okay, there's two reactions people are going to have when they hear you telling the story. One uh-huh. is, that's amazing. It must have really changed your life and um, made things a lot more interesting. And the other reaction is, have you considered that you might have gone insane at that point? Um, which both are fascinating, actually, because if I did go insane at 16 years old, I have been a, an, I've been functional all these years, functional enough to pass every psychological battery I ever had to take to uh, work for the FBI in a very trusted position, to earn a commission in the U.S. Air Force, to be given a badge, credentials, and guns, by the way. Um, so that that's really interesting if they wanted somebody who was clearly insane uh, yeah. like that. <laughs> well, you know, when you described it to me, I just thought it's like, well, something weird happened to me. Why don't I just use it to see what I can see and maybe make life more interesting? And well, it, and, and it did you know? change my life absolutely. I've often yeah how. Well, when I talk about this, I tell people my life is divided. How, how we used to, you know, we did uh, BC and AD. My life, the, the big dividing point was that December of 1979. That morning, I woke up. What my life was before then, my consciousness, who I was was different than what it has been since then. Um, since then, I'm the, the guy I am now is who I've been since I woke up that morning. It was like an awakening. It was like something or somebody reached down, touched me on the forehead and said, wake up. And, um, and boy, did I wake up because uh, almost immediately in my life, I began to experience uh, the, the sensing presences and synchronicities and talk about dreaming. I mean, I would have vivid dreams that then the things in the dream I would encounter in real life. I, I, I had this incredible dream about uh, a little over a year after this awakening experience in 79. And um, that dream parts of it continued to come true for the next uh, 20 years and um, or, or more. And as a matter of fact, Greg, um, part of that dream and, and the, the experience of some of it coming true involved the place where you and Sigrid had your reception for your wedding, the 94th Aero Squadron. You never told me that. I didn't. No, no. I, di- I didn't get the opportunity because I had been there before um, with my first wife for some other event, and I had it had been part of this dream uh, about seven years before that. So, and, and, and we're talking, I, I would be, one time I was in Germany, and, and I walk around a corner in the village of Rudesheim, and there, suddenly, I just, I recognize it immediately. I'm like, oh my gosh, this was in the dream. 
um, I was walking down the street when I lived in Long Island, where I lived in, in Babylon, Long Island. And, you know, I, I'm walking from the train station back to my apartment one day, and, and boom, there it is, a street that I distinctly remember walking down in the dream years before, over 10 years before, and, and, and things like that, little pieces of the dream coming true. My mentor tells me that I was basically shown that dream was not a dream. Basically, I was shown in my sleep um, many years forward of my life. Who's the mentor? mentor? Who was the mentor? Ah, they always love the mentor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You brought it up, man. Yes, I know. You're in Um, trouble now. My mentor is an uncle of mine who was uh, in the same uh, industry, so to speak, as I spent 18 years in. And... Mm -hmm. In fact, was the one who opened the door for me and got me into my profession. And interestingly enough, he's also the one that has guided me and taught me more about the strange and esoteric and the uh, weirder spectrum of reality. Um, in, in he's a real uncle. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this be your father's brother, your mother's brother? Well, I'm my mom's brother. Okay. Somebody worked in intelligence? Yes. Okay. And he took you under his wing, as it were. Yes. And taught you about the weird, the strange and unknown. Absolutely. Okay. All right, so you had the dreams. Mm-hmm. You and sensed the presence. Now, sensing the presence, what kind of presence did you sense? I have sensed various presences over the years. Um, initially, it just came as... You know, just the the little hairs on the back of your neck, what people would call traditionally, you know, experienced with ghosts. But um, more recently, in recent years, um, and and some of them are ghosts. I have sensed the uh, spirits of people who've been dead for for many, many years. Uh, Particularly, um, I am convinced um, at least three uh, murder victims that I'm writing about in my new book. Um, you sound like the lady in the TV series Medium. Yeah, I don't see them, but I feel them. I, I, I have indeed felt their presence. Now uh, that's the question I've asked about this, and you know everything that you talk about can lead to a hundred questions. Uh-huh. So I'll take this one. Yeah, you are in touch with people who appear to be dead. Are you really yeah. seeing the dead, or seeing somebody in a parallel universe? I didn't see them. I felt Sense them. Sense them. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, let me let me describe the experience, and maybe we'll find the answer in there. I would uh, walk in. Um, you know, I'd come into the house. Uh, you know, at, at, at night, later at night, and I would be startled because I literally felt someone was rushing up behind me. Now, you, you know, you got to remember, I'm somebody who I don't walk around in. in you know, I'm not a mouth breather. I don't walk around, you know, uh, you know, zoning out and anybody could walk up and sneak up on me. I'm generally a pretty alert person. My professional life has made me that way. It doesn't mean I'm twitchy or jumpy. I think Greg will tell you that. But, you know, so when I tell you I felt like someone was coming up on me, you know, it comes with some, you know, sane bona fides. And I would feel that intensely. And, of course, I would turn and <laughs> nobody was there visually. And... um it, I, I knew that it was a female, the, the the presence that would rush up on me. It was a female, definitely. Um, I always knew that. And the other two are children. 
And they wouldn't rush up on me. They would just kind of be there, usually sitting in a tree in the front yard. And um, You'd sense they were hanging out. Yeah, and I have felt them also near a couple of trees, the location where they died. Okay, um, so how did you sense what happened to them? Because you talked about a murder. Um, I discovered these murders when I was following up on some research after the Disneyland book about um, ley lines. And I uh, was looking for any paranormal activity after a ley line was identified. One of the ones in in, uh, the system connected with the Disneyland ley lines I write about passed through um, the the local area. And uh, when I was doing the research, I did indeed find out that there was um, a haunting related to that location where it passed where the line passed through and one thing led to another and um i discovered these murders and uh, well which i and my co-author rick spence uh richard spence we present that they were murders they were not reported as such they're just you know very uh, questionable and uh, the further i looked into it the more i became convinced that they were indeed murdered and what's interesting is, as the book was taking shape, and um, the, the spirit activity seemed to die down. Okay, obviously one thing leads to another. You and your co-author wrote a book about the occult origins of Disneyland. Wait a uh, minute. Before we uh, even define that. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Walter Bosley joining us, our co-host, for the first time, but not the last, is Greg Bishop. And if I confuse Walter and Bishop again, you'll understand why, because I keep (laughs) trying to do that. You know, after watching this TV show for two years, then, you know, my brain is completely... All right, Disneyland, what's weird about that? What's so weird about Uh, Disneyland, other than the fact that it's very expensive? Yes, um, Mr. Disney would be uh, spinning in his grave if he knew how expensive they made his park um, to, to get into, and, and then if he saw the condition it's been in, uh, good God. Um, Disneyland was, uh, according to the research presented in the book Latitude 33, was built upon an intersection of three what we colloquially call ley lines, uh, but are, are really uh, energy lines, part of the world grid 
the idea that there are the, these, this energy running through the physical planet and, and covering it like a grid, and then other lines uh, shoot off of those main ones, and basically the Earth has has this current running through it that can be tapped into, and that's what runs through these lines. Well, um, one particular gentleman, an author named Seshari, who uh, has a, a theory and a, and a process, a method for identifying these lines, has identified three of these lines uh, intersecting on the Disneyland property. And interestingly enough, the carousel used to sit right on top of where that intersection is. The carousel was moved in 1982. Well, what kicked off the book, Latitude 33, was my uh, talking with Greg, um, both privately and on his show, about a very strange experience I had at Disneyland um, prior to 1982. And uh, again, one thing led to another, and we discovered these ley lines were under the carousel. My experience involved the carousel. It was kicked off at the carousel. And... uh, when we delved into this more, dug into it, we found out that Disneyland, um, the, the physical chief engineer that actually, you know, the physical design and the building of the place was a man named C.V. Wood, who, an interesting fellow who worked for the Stanford Research Institute. Now, everyone's familiar with SRI, I'm sure, your listeners. They're the guys who develop all sorts of interesting things, including uh, their hand was in remote viewing. And uh, C.V. Wood was one of their engineers, and when the Disneys went to SRI to get some basic consulting on where would be the best place to build their park, they met C.V. Wood. He loved the idea of Disneyland so much that Walt easily hired him away from SRI, and this gentleman, Mr. Wood, um, engineered and built the park um, for the Disneys. What's interesting about Wood is he's he had always had an interest in in strange uh, uh, psychic and extraordinary phenomena. He was uh, friends with uh, uh, Tom, is it Swift? I think the gentleman who founded the Mind Science Foundation. And uh, there's an organization that people like Dean Radin and others um, have done work with. And uh, they're all about you know, human consciousness, and, and, and that involves extraordinary phenomena and such. And this is the man who uh, physically designed the Magic Kingdom and put a carousel right on top of where this intersection of ley lines were, and or, or is to this day. The carousel has been moved. And the device, as we like to call it in the book, theoretically draws the energy up from that intersection of these lines and spreads it out through the park. Now, the park being built in a bowl, a lot of people don't realize that, but Disneyland sets in a bowl with the train going around the berm of that bowl, the perimeter. The the energy drawn up from the intersection of ley lines spreads out through the park, spread by the carousel's motion, drawn up and spread out, and then it gathers at the berm where it kind of, you know, would curves back in the flow back in on itself which might explain that that feeling when you go there even when you're an adult or used to it's not as strong now i don't think um that you just you escape the outside world and you were just in this other place for the day and uh you know it it, we present the idea that cv wood did this on purpose because of his interest in human consciousness that he wanted to play with this and see if it would work and of course it worked big time has anybody um, and, noticed this and discussed this theory? Besides, when, when Walter said I was a co-author, I basically came up the idea with him. He wrote the book, and then I did a bit of editing before it was published. 
the, what I was asking was that uh, if anybody else has, has noticed this or come anywhere near that kind of theory. You mean, well, specifically with Disneyland, no. But since writing it, I, naturally, you know, you have people that contact you and, you know, they've had their experiences. And in all honesty, right. you have to kind of pick and choose, you know, that kind of data. But specifically, um, no. No one has... Uh, you know, approach this material about Disneyland in this way. The other uh, question would be logically, okay, there are other Disney theme parks. They have nothing to do with any of this. Um, Disney World is, uh, now you've got to remember, there's Latitude 33, which is 33 degrees north latitude, but there's, uh, there's a, and that's within a wider zone between 30 and 40 degrees north latitude where it goes in a band around the whole globe, and there's all sorts of interesting things. Um, the Giza pyramids, uh, you know, other ancient uh, sites, but also at Latitude 33, other strange things. Um, Roswell is essentially uh, at Latitude Thirty-three, um, Dallas. You know the, the JFK assassination. Um, if, if you're familiar with Shelby Downard, take on that. Uh, with all those wild synchronicities, that that brings the fact that Dallas is at, you know, essentially at thirty-three. That makes that more interesting. Um, what is interesting is the Disney parks that fall within that zone have been very successful. The one that does not has had a very checkered past and had a rough start, and that's Disneyland Paris. It's out of this zone. And Disneyland Paris has notoriously been, you know, the one Disney park that has had difficulties. All the other ones are very successful. Now, C.V. Wood, after he had a little falling out with Walt, um, he went and, and designed other amusement parks. And the only one of his amusement parks that he built other than Disneyland that has been successful and remains is one that is built on another ley line system and that is uh, Six Flags, the original Six Flags Park in uh, Texas and uh, uh, right there outside Arlington and um, the other parks he built they they went by the wayside they just weren't successful um, so it's interesting that the parks he built in these zones at this latitude, um, they're successful and the other ones are not so the question is, the question we ask is you know, oh, and we identified that there, the other ones were not built on ley lines. It's the ones that were built where we've identified ley lines going through that have been successful. So, now I wonder here: has anyone tried to investigate the terrain to see maybe we have electromagnetic phenomena or something else that would create a higher level of joy when you go to the real Disneyland as opposed to the pretenders? Um, I have never personally taken any kind of magnetometer or anything to Disneyland um, yet. You know, I, I somebody should, you know. Um, I, I just haven't. I've been, I got busy with some other things, so I kind of haven't done a lot at Disneyland. I would like to do that with you because of what I continually tell uh, Walter, um, because if somebody tells me they believe in something, I try to figure out why they shouldn't. And if somebody tells me they don't believe in something, I try to figure out why they're so close-minded and aren't considering it. That's just yeah. the way I am. Yeah, but my now that's another to, thing, too. We used to hear the stories in the UFO field that sightings occurred over so-called ley lines. Now, can we define ley lines a little bit better for those who haven't followed all this stuff? 
Yes. Um, I, I, I will say that in the new book, we explain that what we're actually talking about are current lines that uh, flow through the terrain of the, the, the these, these lines of current flow through the actual terrain of the planet, and um, they can be tapped into. And what's interesting is, um, and, and Seshari writes about this um, in his book, The Handprint of Atlas, goes into better detail than I can. Um, you find all sorts of things, like railroad lines are built uh, basically following along these lines. Um, uh, airports, hospitals, radio towers are very often placed along these lines. Somebody in uh, civil engineering is very much aware of this, and they're using it. Now, to get more specific, there's something called telluric currents that have been used in ground radio for over 100 years. And we, Rick Spence and I get into that a little bit in uh, the new book because it, uh, we believe, is connected to what, we're, uh, what, we, what I investigated and what we're writing about. You know, they and say, Walter, that everything old is new again. Yes. And there and was a book out in 1958 by a French UFO researcher, Amy Michel. Mm-hmm, or flying mm-hmm. saucers in the straight line mystery wasn't that covering the same thing? Very similar, yeah, absolutely. That that's that's kind of what we're talking about. This this energy flows through um, these lines, and um, sure, and, and and it can be tapped into um, uh, UFOs, you know, or flying saucers or whatever alternate propulsion craft, uh, anti gravity craft specifically could tap into this and, and use this to to propel you know along their path that they want to go. But originally, it goes back to the use of ley lines. Goes back to in modern times because these things go way back to Egyptian times. But in modern times, um, a, a man named Alfred Watkins in 1925 um, uh, was investigating these straight line paths of old temples and such in England, and he ended up writing a book called The Old Straight Track. Now, <laughs> I uh, know about this because back in 19. Uh, 8081 when I had my strange encounter at Disneyland which the book goes into I was riding the carousel it was uh, sometime after 9 p.m. in the evening and I saw this this man slender man uh, somewhere around 70 years old with close cropped uh, white hair and a you know snow white hair snow white beard he was wearing a black suit a white shirt no tie and he was standing there just watching the carousel I was on the carousel with some friends he was a man in black Exactly, yeah. And um, uh, he's standing there between where, um, like, Dumbo and Mr. Toad is, that pathway that takes you back to Alice in Wonderland and towards the uh, Matterhorn. And he was just standing there, just watching the carousel go round and round. I saw him about three or four times, and then finally he was gone. Well, we got off the carousel, and uh, we were walking along that path I just described. And, and as we approached the Matterhorn, we saw the old man sitting sitting there by himself, kind of look in our direction, and I don't know why, but I felt compelled to uh, go up and strike up a conversation with him, and uh, and he said his name was uh, Alfred, and uh, he had never been to Disneyland before, and this was in the days when you still had ticket books, but you could also buy a passport, the unlimited use passport. Well, he had only like an A ticket or something, B left, and and uh, we decided, well, let's go over here and ride uh, It's a Small World, because he had not been on that. So we rode Small World with him, and, and I go into this in the book, but um, it, it, long story short, it ended up that I, I just felt like, well, you know, I come to Disneyland a lot, and this old guy, he, and he was just looking at the place, like he, he, was, he was as if you were stunned and amazed at where he was at. So the park was still open for another hour and a half. I, I gave him my uh, passport, my unlimited passport ticket, and I told him, look... Um, 
with this ticket, you can go do all the other things you want to do, unlimited, you know, just have fun. You still got over an hour. And he was profusely grateful. Just, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know, that I would do this. And I gave it to him, and off he went back into Fantasyland. Well, about 12 years later, 11 or 12 years later, I'm working for the FBI. I'm in Manhattan, um, and I go to the Coliseum Bookstore, which is up there down from Columbus Circle. And um, I, I'm in the the section with those books like guys like us like and I'm looking at this book called The Old Straight Track I'm like huh and I open it up and, and there's a picture of the author and I got goosebumps and I didn't know what to think and it freaked me out because the man in the photo was the man I saw at Disneyland uh, there was no mistaking it and um, the weird thing was this man had been dead since I think 1945 whoa yeah. See, nowadays, you see, our society is so weird now. We think that anybody like that, you know, an old man hanging around Disneyland talking to teenage boys, gee, he's got to be a predator of some sort. <laughs> well, I mean, you we know, really are in a very, yeah. very sick world where nobody can be trusted anymore. Well, That's well, a totally the, different subject. The, the key to the whole thing is that this old man at Disneyland, who was the, the spitting image of the man looking at the book, he told me his name was Alfred. Now, it's not like he said Joe or Bob or Harry or Tom. He said Alfred. And then here, 11 years later, I learn about Alfred Watkins is the guy that wrote this book on, on the ley lines. Well, the, the book gets into all the myriad possibilities of who this old man at Disneyland could have been and what. And, and with the experience I had there with my Alfred... With this experience of learning about Alfred Watkins for years, I tried to figure out what's going on. You know, what happened to me at Disneyland, and then bring it up to the recent times. And Greg and I are talking about this, and uh, we find out we are trying to look into the origin of why Club Thirty Three is called Club Thirty Three. So, Greg pulled up Disneyland on Wikipedia, and I'll be damned, but uh, Wikipedia always has Latin longitude of any place you look up, and there it was. The latitude is thirty three point. Uh, one eight eight one or eight one one eight something like that, and we were like three point eight something. Yeah, and and we're like wow, wow, Club thirty three and Disneyland's on the thirty third degree of latitude. Now they tell you that thirty three represents the first thirty three sponsors of Disneyland. Okay, and that may be true, but there is just a mild synchronicity, and as far as synchronicities go that I've personally experienced in the last three years alone, let me tell you, that's a mild synchronicity, but a synchronicity indeed. So I wondered, what is this telling me? What in the hell is going on here? And so I'll I tell you what before we find out the answer. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Greg Bishop is our co-host. Walter Bosley joins us 
and he is talking about synchronicity. So what the hell is going on here, my friend? I suspect that the ley lines, the, the carousel being on those ley lines at Disneyland, I'm, I was writing it, and I suspect that the Alfred that I encountered, and, and again, this I go into the book on this, the Alfred that I encountered was either um, a man who was the spitting image of Alfred Watkins with the same name, and the universe, the, the, the entities, whatever you want to say, put made our paths cross so that years later, when I learned about Alfred Watkins, I would make the connection and investigate what I indeed investigated. A or, silly question here, silly question. Yeah. Do you have any children? Alfred Watkins? Sure, because you think, well, maybe he's a man who died, I don't know what age, but now we have a 70-year-old man, and now... You're seeing that 70-year-old man, what, 35 uh, years after the original died? Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Interesting enough, yeah, he had children, but um, you got to remember, once I came upon what I've been investigating for three years, I set delving into the Disneyland thing aside because what I found was so much bigger and more impactful so um, yes Watkins had kids I recall in my research not being able to find out very much at all about them which is interesting in itself but um, it, yeah it, it could have been that the double was even you know Watkins' son theoretically another possibility is something uh, Greg actually uh, suggested and that is what I encountered was actually a tulpa and that is a physicalized entity um, that was indeed um, a, a what's the word for it? A substitute Alfred, um, you know that that was brought up to do the same thing that the double would have, and that was plant the idea in my head so that later I would recognize him when I saw it, and then you know ultimately investigate what I investigated. The third possibility is my personal favorite, and that is that Alfred Watkins, back in 1925 when he was investigating this stuff in England, stepped into one of these intersections and was physically transported across time and space to Disneyland that day and that night in 1981, and that would explain why my Alfred was so kind of wide-eyed and amazed about where the hell am I. Okay, but this is small potatoes, you're saying. There are things that are even more significant. Let's focus on some of those. Well, I, I was referring to my new research, and I, I, again, I'm not going to go into too great a detail on that yet, but um, things that, uh, basically, there, there's a, a network of uh, things done on these intersections. There um, have been, I believe, um, I suspect acts of murder committed on these ley line intersections um, magical when I say magical I mean high magic like Enochian type magic conducted on uh, these things um, in other words extreme events yeah extreme events and um, or, or at least with the goal to cause an extreme event and in researching this I have encountered intense synchronicities um presences i've even yeah i even had an entity a particular goddess show herself on the side of a mountain that happened uh, about two years ago to me <laughs> what did that I, how did that happen what did that look like 
I don't want to identify the goddess right now. Um, That's I, fine. I, have you guys heard of the admonition of Isis? You know, when Isis lifts her veil and shows you what she really looks like, her oh, admonition yes. is to tell no one. And um, this has left me... I, I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm closer to once the new book is out and, and the, the follow-up that there's plenty of material for, um, maybe taking a break from talking about all this stuff and just kind of you know, going away from it all because what I have found has been so, has had such a profound impact on me. And, um, I've only, I, I've talked probably with Greg and maybe two other very close confidants and anywhere near the details about this. And, um, there's even certain aspects, you know, certain impressions that it's left on me, but, it's that whole thing, I, I'm beginning to understand why Isis says tell no one, aside from the fact that making you look like what Anthony Hopkins calls in Bram Stoker's Dracula, God's own madmen. <laughs> um, it, it Things that, you know what, people just aren't going to believe. And the experiences I've had, I, it, it's, I, I don't care if people you know, don't believe it. I'm at, I'm at that point now. I honestly really don't care if people don't believe me. I'm not here, I, I, you know, on certain things to uh, convince anyone anymore. You know, Walter, uh, there's a, uh, we listen to you say these things, and I've read some of your stuff and talked to you. I remain unconvinced on some things and sort of convinced on others. But the point is that when you start looking at some of these weird things, they're only going to make sense for you, and there's a real trick to figure out how it's going to make sense to other people. That's right. And this right. this author that we talked to, he goes about, and we're not going to say who it is because I don't think he wants it revealed, but he um, he goes about things by making really strange un things that don't seem connected. He will make connections somehow, almost in an alchemical way, and then he'll go look for the evidence to support it, and more often than not, he finds it. And people will say, how the hell did you find that? And, but he, he won't tell them that he, he took an educated weirdo guess. Yeah. And then he did it backwards. Most people, you know, they have a theory or they get some information and they form a theory out of it. He forms the theory first based on almost on intuition. Then he goes yeah. and looks for the information. And like I said, more often than not, he finds it. That fascinates me. And, well, and, and that, Yeah, but the question would be then, is he coloring what he's finding because he expects to find it? You no, know, but the, the point is to make it understandable to other people, not just convince himself. And the th the point is that he does that. He does it to me. He does it, you know, to my my satisfaction. And I'm exceedingly skeptical about things. Oh, and it, it, it it's it's an amazing method, and and that's kind of of what I experienced. I, I I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you flat out. I discovered what I discovered that the, what I've been investigating for three years and writing about after I started doing remote viewing in um, August of 2007. Uh, well, you know what? We can almost do a remote viewing show with you, and that's something which I wanted to follow up when you mentioned this on our previous episode, the one where we were covering Mac Tony's work and the theories about UFOs from the inner earth, and unfortunately we don't have time today to do it. Right. Right. But it's something that we need to explore in the future. This book, when will it be out? Well, um, the uh, our agent is. We're still we're going through the editorial process as he is making the the preparations to uh, present it to a couple of publishers. Um, he's already uh, spoke with a little bit on it. Uh, he said that 
realistically either later this year or um, early next year. Um, he's very excited about it. Um, once he, from the time he read uh, the the outline, and now you know after reading the book, he was just bowled over by you know what we've got in there. Um, essentially, it kind of that's how Richard Spence came into it. Was he um, some of his past writings? I was using as um, you know in, in my research, and uh, so I contacted him and uh, told him what I was looking into, and he was so helpful, just giving me all sorts of information. So finally, after a few months of this, I said, "Hey, Rick, why don't you write this thing with me? Because I really feel like you could bring you know something with it." And he he was said yeah absolutely and so for the last year he and i have been you know getting this book out there and um so you know it's it's very i'm very excited about it it's got uh the book itself does not get into these things i'm telling you about my experience writing it and no way no way is that going to be in the book but uh these things i'm talking about that i experienced um these are what led me to what you read in the book now when i say led me to it led me to the specific detail to research, which I then found the evidence for, okay? And and I know what you're saying, Gene, about, well, you know, is it creating the evidence? Um, no, it's, it's this indirect way of looking at things. It, you end up finding that the evidence for what you suspect is there, exists. Okay, well, let's have a very quick summary then. What is the book about, really? The book is about some uh, questionable deaths um, that, and I and I'm not going to give a detail where or when because I really don't want you know someone else rushing out and beating us to the punch. Quite frankly, and I worked too hard on this to hand it to someone else um, at this point. Um, but uh, these deaths um, were, I I believe, um, they were not recognized. Uh, at least publicly, for what they actually were. And I believe they were serial killings. And what happened was my research um, turned up that it looked like there was some occult motivation going on, and this occult motivation was tied to the ley line system. And in the book, I identify um, the actual entity that the people who I believe did this believed they were doing it on behalf of. And in that, we reveal some very interesting historical things um, associated with it. And that's really the best I can do right now. Um, you know, maybe a few months down the road, as soon as we get the, the actual publisher identified, then, you know, we'll be talking a lot more about it. But um, what it basically is, is, is a, a system that Walter has discovered of possible ritualized sacrifice involving uh, humans. Um, taking place in the early part of the 20th century. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits 
Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We yeah. have our co-host, Greg Bishop. We're talking to Walter Bosley about various and sundry things. Did you have a moment to pick up that blog article about Mac Tony's book, Crypto Terrestrials? I done a couple of searches, and oddly enough, let me put in one more name here. Maybe that will... This, is, ladies and gentlemen, is live research on the radio. Yes. It's really happening. Oh, here we go, right here. It's at UFO... Excellent. I, at UFO Iconoclast. <laughs> oh, what a surprise. And um, the article <laughs> is called The Lie About Aliens from the Inner Earth. Do I name the author or not? Anthony Bergalia? Okay, that's his initials, yes. Oh, what a, what a surprise. Okay, I'll have yeah. to go look at it. I'm going to see if anyone uh, responded to my reply. My opinion of Anthony Bergalia is he finds something he thinks that will piss people off and then tries to support it without really taking the time to figure out if it's going to be well supported in the first place. Oh, he Recently responded. he came out with a theory, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that the case in Sakara, New Mexico was fake. And his reasons seem rather bogus. In fact, we tried to get him on the show to debate Ray Stanford and talk about the case, but he declined to participate. I, I have Mr. Uh, Bregalia's response to my comment last night, if you'd like me to read it live on the air here. You know what, why don't you read it? Maybe this will frame what his criticism is. Okay. Now, Mr. Bosley, a quick Google on you. This guy apparently does all his research on Wikipedia and Google. Uh, well, heck, quick, that's not a bad way. Uh, a quick Google on you means... He does other research, too. He actually calls people, writes letters and all that, so it's not okay, that bad. Good, good okay. Um, reveals I'm defending several, him here. Okay. A quick Google on me reveals several interesting things. He says, this is him saying to me, you believe that Disneyland was built on purpose at its particular California location due to the special convergence of ley lines. It was cited there because it lies within a mystical, in quotes, geophysical zone. Okay, yes. You see special significance in latitude 33 and that energy lines run along this latitude that somehow affect the course of events. Yes. The JFK assassination and the Roswell crash are both somehow tied to this specific latitude. Uh, yes, they are physically located on this latitude, Mr. Bergalia. Um, then he says, you have admitted that some of your novels are based on your real research. Or is it the other way around? I can now understand why you buy into the crypto myth and such adventure fiction, in quotes, you write fiction under the pseudonym E.A. Guest. And by the way, I know of another former AFOSI agent. His name is Rick Doty. He'll tell you tall tales till Tuesday. A.J.B. Guilt by association. Gosh. Um, this guy's mind is... You couldn't pull a, a needle out of this guy's ass if you used a tractor, I'm thinking. Well, the, I think <laughs> the point he's making is not to, not to discuss the... Um the material the at hand, but it, yeah. it, it sounds like more like character assassination. I don't know if he actually goes into the material at hand, hand and um, supports himself on it. I'll have to read the article. But if you have nothing to, you know, if you have nothing to uh, say, you go after somebody's character. It has has nothing to do with your argument, and that's very weak. Okay, well, that's sounds the most important point here, Walter. In yeah. his original article, which you commented yeah. on, did yeah. he have any points, valid points, or even? You know, points it's beyond character assassination to make about um, Max theories. 
basically, it really no. It, to me, it, it came off, and and it did to others, to to Michael Mott, and uh, who gave very good uh, rebuttal to the guy. Nick Redfern was the first one to jump in and say, "Whoa, uh, Anthony, uh, hold on here a second. Nick is in there. Mike Mott's in there. You know, I joined the fray. Um, basically, this guy has his view." Um, he's already made up his mind, and I, I'm guessing, uh, you know, I don't know whose blog this is. Maybe it's his, so therefore it's his forum. So, you know, he's going to be 100% himself. But um, he, he really is just clearly made up his mind that everything except the ETH is a bunch of BS. And isn't there isn't that ironic? <laughs> but uh, that's, you know, he's looks like he's a dyed-in-the-wool ET religion supporter. And uh, everybody else is a fool. Everybody else believes a bunch of lies. Everybody else, you know, is a knucklehead. He, of course, is um, the brilliant man of clarity who, who really knows what is. But like I see no clarity in his rebuttal. He's just basically attacking well, well, we heard because he's an ETH-er. Yeah, well, all, I mean, basically his response to me is he listed a bunch of stuff that yeah, is yeah. These are the theories I put out there. He didn't list any rebuttal to it, and then he attacks me. Essentially, you know, a backhanded uh, character assassination. So I don't know who um, Anthony Bregalia is. I, I never heard of him until I happened to find this, and I don't really care. He's you know. No, I think I think we've all tussled with him. I I did a little bit on the Socorro thing, and um, he uh, like I said he'll he. he he seems to base his research first on a belief and, a, and a, seemingly a desire to irritate and piss people off rather than trying to find out where the facts might lead to the point of, you know, stuffing things into the box where they shouldn't be, they, stuffing things into a belief box where they don't quite fit. As, as witnessed, if you read, like Gene said, the thing about uh, Socorro, he's also somebody that believes wholeheartedly in the Roswell was extraterrestrials from another planet theory, and he won't let go of that either. So, to my mind, that's somebody that is basically, like I said, using using opinions first and research and 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 um, and critical thinking second, and sometimes yeah. a distant second. And I hope he hears this and gets mad because then maybe I'll respond. <laughs> well, we yeah, can always bring him on the show and let him basically defend himself say okay you're coming up with these ideas you tell us what are your facts stop the character assassination or maybe we should ignore him yeah and then on top of that give us something beyond what you yourself would call nonsense to support the theory you're embracing that other people would call equally nonsense that's the thing that gets me but enough about this guy he's he's going to get off on us talking about him and he's not worth it but, maybe uh, that's the intention yeah, so. which is probably why I stopped responding to him a long time ago because it's one of yeah. those things where you just start going in circles and it's not accomplishing anything. I'm not learning anything, and he's exactly. not changing his mind. So why bother? Yeah, these these are the people when you when you get into that, it's no good talking to each other at all because we we just don't want to hear what each other has to say. So of What's course, that's part of the UFO field. You know, you find uh, characters like this in the UFO field who are so dogmatic about their own theories they don't entertain any other possibilities. And one of the things we've tried to do here in the PowerCast, and certainly what the people that I'm so happy to have join me as co-hosts, Greg and Nick Redfern, Paul Kimball, and Chris O'Brien, we look into what's going on without a preconceived notion of where it's going to take us because the road is very surprising. 
And that's also another point to maybe mention as we get towards the end of this. Walter, is there an end game? Is there any way we'll ever find out what's really going on? Or does the mystery itself keep taking us to the next stage? I think that there is an end game for us as individuals. There is it, um, But I think the big picture goes on and on and on. It is eternal. The reason ISIS says tell no one is because here's here's the thing. Like the people with disclosure, the, the people must know we have a right. We BS. This is one thing that my experiences of the last three years have convinced me. I suspected before, but I've been convinced. We don't have a right to know the mysteries. Knowing the answers to the mysteries, knowing the truth, is something you got to earn as an individual. Okay, and uh, so disclosure. A bunch of malarkey. We don't have the right to, to know that, but you, you have the ability to learn it. Go out there and dig it out for yourself. Learn it for yourself. And, and all the answers to the mysteries are that way. And, and it's a path that you have to show you're worthy before the truth will reveal itself to you. It's like you know casting pearls before swine. You know, Not every living, breathing person on this planet um, is uh, not a knucklehead. And you know what? Um, these, these beings, the, these other, you know, intelligences, you know, their attitude is, why should I reveal myself and these amazing things, you know, to this guy or that lady? You know, we no, no. don't even have the knowledge of what their motives are, do we? Really? Uh, I, I, I think, no, I, I think actually in some cases, if you look historically, some of those motives are, you know, out in the open. It's, Unless it's, you uh, accept what they're saying is true, yes. Because that gets into the other subject, which is, do these entities just deceive us for their own ends? They can come here and do. say, heck, we're some here do. to save the Earth from planetary destruction because of That's the right. dangers to our environment. Yeah, some do, but just because some do doesn't mean all do. And, and gosh, we've had stories since time began, you know, of these beings called gods who, you know, some meant us harm and some meant us good. I mean, look at the Greek, the stories of the Greek pantheon. Um, you, you know, uh, look, at, look at the Odyssey. You know, um, uh, Athena took mercy on Odysseus when the rest of the gods on Olympus, eh, didn't care, and a few of them were just so pissed off at him that they were, you know, giving him a hard time. There's a story right there. You know, where did that come from? So, who were the I, gods on Olympus? Well, the the, the Greek question. gods, Aphrodite. Uh, yes, oh, you but mean, you know what I mean. Who yeah. were they really? You know, whether they were advanced beings from another world or another dimension, um, I happen to believe. Uh, uh, to, to me, the gods are real. They they are they are physical, real. Entities with their own personalities. And one of them made herself known to me, as I said earlier, saw her across the side of a mountain, and it was one of the most amazing things I have ever seen in my life. And I saw it, she was there, you know, call me a nut. <laughs> I don't care, because, uh, you know, saw it with my own eyes. And I'm not crazy. I may be crazy, but I'm functional. Um, <laughs> Well, we can go with that. I think most of us here are crazy but functional, more or less. Walter, yeah. what do you think? What ultimately? What do you think is behind all this stuff you're talking about? All the UFO stuff? Is it an intelligence? Is it something that we form ourselves? Is it a combination of the two? What do you think is ultimately well, you, you behind? Mean, 
behind the big picture stuff or behind just the UFO mystery? Maybe more more the UFO stuff, but also okay. the big picture mystery because because they're they're connected. Okay, here here's the thing. What's behind UFOs are the following. Yes, extraterrestrials from other planets. Yes, uh, hidden technology that's very human in its origin from this planet. Yes, beings from other dimensions. And yes, very big time, the idea of ourselves from the future time traveling. It's like all of the above. Exactly. I can go with that. And I'm not saying that as a cop-out. I sincerely... I sincerely think that's the answer. It is all these things. That's why the ET religion people need to calm down a little bit. No one's trying to take their little ball or their lollipop away from them. No one's trying to tell them that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Their theory, yes, is true. My dad's story about, you know, in what, you know, Joseph Farrell's saying about a very human Earth-based story, yes, that's true. Beings from other dimensions. Oh, yes, that's true, too. And beings across time, you betcha. All of this. And, and because you can point to, if, and that's another conversation, but we can point to all sorts of evidence that what I'm saying is likely. So, you know, it, it, the people that get spun up over, you know, well, it, it, what cracks me up about, you know, um, some people who get hypercritical of anything but their own is it's like a bunch of guys in the loony bin you know, all fighting over, you know, they're not the crazy one. <laughs> you know, and the guy outside the loony bin is just looking at it going, what the hell? You know, and, and that's <laughs> what this reduces itself to. And, um, you know, it's, I, you know, my experiences I've had, I'll tell you, certain ones I have no doubt what I experienced. And it's kind of an interesting freedom. It's liberating that I honestly don't give a crap what a limited mind or a smug mind, um, I think that's worse than uh, just being limited. I think smugness, you know, when you're limited, a smug limited mind to me is just worse. That's ugh, that's toxic. I don't I don't like to be around that. But sounds uh, like the UFO field is toxic to a lot of people. I've left it three times, by the way, over the years. And we call this show not the UFO cast, but the Paracast for a reason yeah. because it's not mm -hmm. just UFOs. Right, right. Where do our listeners find out more of the things that you're doing and what you're working on? Any website or something? Um, well, my book is uh, available as a PDF. Um, I can send you a way to link it if you don't want me to mention the website because it is a website that's associated with another show. <laughs> I'll tell you what we'll do here. Why don't you send the link and I will post it on thepowercast.com. Give our listeners a okay. chance to check it out. Greg Bishop, this is your first time as co-host. Where can our listeners learn more about the things that you're up to? Well, lately I haven't been much uh, up to much of anything because I think I might be going through that period you were just talking about where you get sick of it. But if they want to check out what I have done and my all my statements up to this point, they can check out obviously UFO Mystic that I uh, write at with uh, along with... Nick Redfern, um, Leslie Gunter. Uh, God, how many people are on there now? Scott Corrales, um, Regan Lee, and uh, excludedmiddle.com. That's uh, where my magazine that I started in the early 90s is is um, housed right now. And, of course, the radio show, um, Radio Misterioso, and the Misterioso is spelled like in Spanish, M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O. -S 
um, dot com. They can find uh, shows there. A lot of shows I've done with Walter are on there as a co-host and and also um, uh, as an interviewee and just us sitting. A lot of times he'll come in and we'll just sit around and talk about whatever we feel about like talking about. So yeah, any of those places you can you you can check that stuff out and see where I'm coming from. Well, as they improve the GPS system, we'll know where you are. We'll know how to find you. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, on next week's episode, Kevin D. Randall returns. He'll be talking about his new book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky. Paul Kimball will be our co-host. Chris O'Brien should also be aboard. And we'll ask Kevin about whether those UFO crashes fall on specific ley lines. What does he think about that? A special thank you to Walter Bosley and, of course, to Greg Bishop. Thank you both for making this a special occasion on the Paracast. Thanks, Gene. Thank you, Gene. I appreciate being on again. The Paracast is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. <laughs> <laughs>